This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today we will be playing music from 1959 and reading stories by Kate Wilhelm. Today I have for you two stories. The first one will be Android Kill For Me which was published in 1959, followed by The Mile Long Spaceship, which was published in 1957. So we're picking music from 1959. And right in the background, you're hearing Lamonte Young Jr.'s uh, Sarah Bondi. And let's keep listening to that. and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Next, I will be reading Android Kill for Me by Kate Wilhelm, which was first published in Science Fiction Stories, Volume 10, Number 2, in May of 1959. 
Zeke was the latest type of android, and he'd do what Helen wanted him to do, because she knew how to get around his built-in inhibitions. Android Kill For Me by Kate Wilhelm. We simply must be going, dear. So nice of you to have us. Mrs. Snelly led the way, rising from her relaxer chair, and the others of the visiting group of ladies followed, exhibiting various stages of unwillingness. Finally, couldn't they see how nervous she was? How they bored her? It is so glorious coming here. The house, the atmosphere, Zeke. Everything so out of the ordinary. Cassie glanced around the voluptuous room, enviously. How I'd love to be an intellectual, too. Ha! And be stuck with one man all your life? And have ten children? Not for me. Mrs. Snelly was a tall, thin woman, nearly forty. Now she apologized swiftly to their hostess. Oh, not that it doesn't suit you, Helen. It does. You look better each year. Five children by now, isn't it? You certainly don't show it. But for me, to have to be married to the same man for twenty years is positively inconceivable. Can you think of any other way to build up the race? Cassie asked indignantly. They say before this plan was worked out that the brains of people were just vanishing. It isn't as if an intellectual can't have friends, but that sort of thing doesn't take the place of a good solid marriage, even if it does last only a few months. Mrs. Snelly patted Helen's hand with malicious sympathy and asked sweetly, By the way, where's that pilot who has been so very attentive recently? Oh, really? He's not even a friend. An acquaintance is more like it. But now he's getting ready for Mars Run. Helen shrugged off, the hand still on her own. I'm glad he's gone. He was beginning to tire me. Oh, disappointment was evident on several of their faces. We all thought that this time someone might stay around for a while until your time comes up again. Anyway, next month, isn't it? Would twins count as one or two of the times? They could talk about that for hours. Why didn't they leave? Why must women say they're leaving and stay talking in the foyer? And why had she even started such inane gatherings in the first place? She was an intellectual amidst mechanics and technicians. She had said she needed the stimulus of talking to other women, and there were so few in the intellectuals that she honestly cared about. Stimulus. By the way, is the latest book film nearly ready yet? I'm dying to see it. The speaker was the youngest of the lot, her figure swollen with the first of two children allotted to her. She motioned Zeke to help her with her cape. Almost finished. Another week or so ought to see it done, Helen answered. As usual, she was reluctant to discuss an unfinished work. And as usual, they pressed for details. She was all but pushing them out. How exciting! Is it another historical romance? 
When do you get the chance to do your research? They tell me that you are as good as any historian. Is it true that Zeke helps you with the research? Zeke is absolutely indispensable to me. She flashed a quick smile towards the entrance, where Zeke stood patiently holding another wrap. He scans the film strips of the period I want, and when I need a bit of additional information, he has it immediately. She never failed to give Zeke credit for his part. Of course, the plots and characters were hers, but on the other hand, they never changed materially from that first book she had produced on learning that she had been classed as an intellectual. The idiots never noticed such a minor detail, however. Helen's books all followed the same general pattern. Boy meets girl, girl belongs to a king or general or president or someone equally important. Boy kills off competition by his own efforts and wins girl. Whether it was in the days of the Great Wars, or even stretching the imagination to near-breaking and going past wars in history, the plot remained unchanged. The last chapter always described in detail the girl falling into the arms of the perspiring boy, usually stepping over the body of the villain to get to that particular spot. They were always bestsellers. All women dreamed of being so won and dominated, even as they tossed their men aside. They longed to be taken by force. Helen dramatized it, put it in words and acts for them, and they adored it and her, their own intellectual. Who else among them had enough imagination to create such searing drama? Mrs. Snelly accepted her cape from Zeke and said with an elegant casualness, "'Where to get a new android next month? Class T!' There were squeals from the girls. "'How marvelous! It will be able to go shopping. Teas are very advanced. And it will make a fourth at bridge, won't it?' "'No, I think that starts with W, but teas are good. "'Not like Zeke, of course, but so much better than my O-type, "'which can't even turn on the television properly.' I do wish I could find a single doctor or lawyer so I could get a higher type. The pregnant girl pouted, looking enviously at her more fortunate companion. After your figure is back, you probably will. It takes time. They all had their capes, finally, and were on their way towards the transit belt that would take them to their respective homes. Helen didn't wait for Zeke to tidy and leave the room before she made her call to the spaceport. He heard, and she knew it, but she didn't care. ZKL-19379 was a thing, a man-made thing. If he listened, what difference could it make? He was hers to dictate to, to rely on for information, to finish her manuscripts for her, to take the place of a houseful of human servants. Hello, darling. I had to see you again before you left. But I told you, I'll think of a way. Promise me you'll come back. Thanks, dearest. When you return from Mars, I'll be free. It's an oath. She watched his face fade from view, as if someone were adding layers and layers of gauze between them, until finally he was gone. 
Zeke asked the sculptor husband if he had any preference for dinner that evening, or any errands to be done. He typed the morning's dictation from his memory relay circuit, erasing it as the words appeared on the paper. The words were gone, but the mood of them, the tone of them, the basic meaning of them was forever part of him once she spoke them out loud. The memory circuit was blinked, however, ready for the next morning's work. He prepared the preliminaries for the dinner and then left on some errands, his marked forehead making people on the belt nudge one another and point him out. Z-types were rare. Their very markings made them eligible to enter without questions, wherever they were sent. Everyone knew that they were the epitome of man's creative ability and, as such, incapable of doing wrong. From her bedroom window, Helen watched Zeke advance to call her husband to dinner. The statue he was doing was of the 25th world president, a massive thing in beautiful Florentine marble, black streaks with red and gray. It towered over the puny head of its creator, the best work of the world's finest artist. Her manner when she had first approached Zeke with the problem had been oblique. No direct order or request. A hint. If the statue fell, it would surely kill the man working so concentratedly on it. He would be unaware of footsteps, would be so completely immersed in what he was doing that he wouldn't know anything until it hit. Naturally, she couldn't do such a thing. The law would be swift, and she would go to the hospital. Afterward, she would be among the lowliest. No, she couldn't possibly do such a thing. But then, it was foolish even to surmise on it. Because who could imagine what kind of strength it would take to topple such a heavy object anyway? But he had made life so hellish for her, had always done so in their ten years of marriage. Zeke knew, he had seen and heard, always scolding her and deriding her friends and refusing to have anything to do with her until it was time for her to conceive again. She worked hard. She deserved a slight measure of happiness from life. Then the look of incredulous shock had passed her features. She was sorry. Zeke must forget it. She had gotten in the habit of thinking him a person. It had been wrong to name him in the first place. Everyone had been startled by it and had warned her not to do it. But she had, and now she saw that they had been right. He wasn't a person to whom one should tell one's innermost thoughts. She watched avidly as Zeke paused, the statue hiding him from the sight of her husband. Zeke was strong, stronger ever than the men who had put him together. His muscles were thin and nylon interwoven. He put one shoulder against the statue and almost in slow motion, tridimensional fashion, it began to fall, gathering momentum until the crash it made. When it hit, shook the house and the woman gazing out.
For a while, the finality of it stunned her. Then the thought of new freedom gained control. She called the spaceport, hoping that the Martian liner had not departed yet. The reply was like a physical blow, and it seemed as if someone else were talking and she was listening to someone ask if there were any survivors. A useless question. There never were when it happened to take off. Helen turned off the android at the other end, dully, and raised her face from her hands, only when she heard Zeke return. Zeke knew her books, and he couldn't be expected to discern between fact and fiction. He knew that a woman always loved the one who vanquished her enemies for her, who freed her from bondage to a man she detested. That was why she hadn't had to command him to. But there had been two of them, and Zeke had done more than tumble the statue. He had fixed the ship. He would expect her to be grateful, to melt into his arms, and forever after finding the bliss she had always sought to the victor. The Z on his forehead glowed softly as he advanced. Steel arms outstretched. That was Android Kill For Me by Kate Wilhelm, which was first published in Science Fiction Stories, Volume 10, Number 2, in 1959. We're very pleased to announce a new line of goods. Remember that museum uh, of uh, Piazza de Neptuno in Rome? There was a museum there, and I remember seeing a monk with a very bemused expression on his face, watching the famous Greek statue. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. Today we are reading stories by Kate Wilhelm. I'll tell you a little bit about her later, but we're also playing music from 1959. 
So first we heard the composition Sarabandi, composed in 1959 by Lamonte Young Jr. and performed by Amy Schulman and John Schneider. In the background of the story we just listened to, we heard Giacinto's, Giacinto Silesi's composition Quattro Pezzi, and performed, which was performed by the Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra. And what we just heard was Helm L. Dobbs' composition, Electronics and the World Word. Uh, now we'll be listening to George Crumb's Verizienu for Large Orchestra, performed by the Louisville Orchestra. I thought, just before we start our next story, we're kind of, which will be soon, tell you a little bit about Kate Wilhelm. She actually just died this March in 2018. Uh, she was born in 1928, so she died at the age of 90. Uh, she's an American author, and she is also an award-winning author. Um, she's won the Nebula Award for Best Short Story in 1968 the Hugo Award for Best Novel, and the Locus Award for Best Novel in 1977 with Where the Late, Where Late the Sweet Birds Sang. Uh, she also won the Nebula Award for Best Novelette in 1986 with The Girl Who Fell Into the Sky, and the Nebula Award for Best Short Story in 1987 with Forever Yours, Anna. She's also written um, uh, mysteries and suspense novels. A very, very prolific writer. Uh, and it's great to be spotlighting her today. That previous story I thought was kind of interesting. Um, just looking at women's, the women's portrayal and then also the intelligence of the android. So, there's kind of this conflict of, like, what the woman assumes the android is learning and what the android actually learned. Um, she thought that he would just kill her husband, but she, and she would be able to get with her lover who was, a, um, who was on a spaceship, but instead he killed her husband and her lover because he wanted to be the one that she fell into the arms to. Um, so that comes down to, to learning. Um, pro, uh, computer programs can be very... Um, can just... You know, what you program to, them to do is what they do. And she kind of programmed the robot to... with different expectations. So we'll get to our next story in a moment. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Next, I will be reading The Mile Long Spaceship by Kate 
Wilhelm, which was first published in Astounding Science Fiction, Volume 59, Number 2, which was published in April of 1957. They knew that some entity living somewhere had awareness of them and their immense ship, but they couldn't find out where he was because he didn't know. The Mile-Long Spaceship by Kate Wilhelm Alan Norbet shivered uncontrollably, huddling up under the spotless hospital sheet, seeking warmth. He stirred fretfully as consciousness slowly returned, and with the blinding stab of pain through his head, a moan escaped his lips. Immediately, a nurse was at his side, gently, firmly forcing him back on the bed. You must remain completely still, Mr. Norbit. You're in St. Agnes Hospital. You suffered from a fractured skull in the accident, and surgery was necessary. Your wife is outside waiting to see you. She is uninjured. Do you understand me? The words had been spoken slowly, very clearly, but he had grasped only fragments of them. What accident? The ship couldn't have an accident. He'd been dead out there in space, and his wife hadn't even been there. What happened to the ship? How did I get back on Earth? The words came out agonizingly each effort causing much in pain and dizziness. Mr. Norbit, please calm yourself. I've rung for your doctor. He'll be here presently. The voice soothed him, and a faint memory awakened. The wreck? His wife? His wife? Claire! Where's Claire? Then the doctor was there, and he was also soothing. Alan closed his eyes again in relief as they reassured him about Claire's safety. She would be here in a moment. The other memories receded and mingled with the anesthetic dreams he'd had. The doctor felt his pulse and listened to his heart and steadied his eyes, all while talking. You're a lucky man, Mr. Norbit. There was quite a wreck you were in. Your wife was even luckier. She was thrown clear when the bywheel first hit you. Alan remembered it all quite clearly now and momentarily wondered how he'd come out of it all. The doctor finally finished his examination and smiled as he said, Everything seems perfectly normal, considering the fact that you have been trapezing all over space for the last five days. Days? Yes. The wreck was Saturday. This is Thursday. You've been under sedation quite a bit to help you rest. There was extensive brain injury, and absolute quiet was essential. Dr. Barnsdale performed a brilliant operation Saturday night. Alan had the feeling the doctor was purposefully being so loquacious to help him over the hump of the shock of awakening after almost six days. 
He was in no pain now, while he kept his head still. But talking brought its own punishment, and he was grateful to the doctor for answering unasked questions. The doctor waited by his side for a second or two. Then, in a professional tone, he told the nurse to bring in Claire. And again to Alan. She can only stay a few minutes. Less if you begin talking. I'll be in again this afternoon. You rest as much as possible. If the pain becomes severe, tell your nurse. She's instructed to administer a hypo only if you request it. Again, he laughed jovially. Don't let her talk you into it, though. She's really thrilled by that spare yarn you've been telling and might want to put you to sleep just to hear more. Claire's visit was very brief and very exhausting. Afterwards, he rested comfortably for nearly an hour before the pain flooded his old being. Nurse? Yes, Mr. Norbit? Her fingers rested lightly on his wrist for a moment. The pain. Just try to relax, sir. It will be gone soon. He didn't feel the prick of the needle in his arm, but the pain left him in layers, gradually becoming a light enough load to permit sleep and the coldness. Space was so cold. No winds to blow in spurts and gusts to relieve the cold by their absence. Only the steady, numbing, same black, empty cold. He turned his head to look over his shoulder, and already Earth was indistinguishable among the countless stars and planets. Never had man, he told himself, seen all the stars like this. They were incredibly bright. And even as he viewed them, he wondered at the movement of some of them. There was a visible pulsation, sometimes almost rhythmically, other times very erratic. A star would suddenly seem to expand enormously on one side. The perturbance around it glowed even more brightly, then die down only to repeat the performance over and over Alan wished he knew more about astronomy. He had only the most rudimentary knowledge that everyone had since the first spaceship had reached Mars. He had been out of school when space travel had become possible and had never read past the newspaper for the information necessary to understand the universe and its inhabitants. He shivered again and thought about the advantages of eyeless seeing. There was no pupil to dilate, no retina to burn or damage, no nerves to protest with pain at the brightness of the sight. It was, he decided, smugly, much better to be here without his cumbersome body to hamper him. Then suddenly, he remembered the ship, the mile-long spaceship, for an instant, he sent his mental gaze deep into space all around him, but the ship was nowhere to be seen. He surmised it must be millions of light years from Earth. As he visualized it again, he slowly became aware that once more he was aboard her and the stars he was seeing were on the giant wall screen.
He watched with interest as one planet after another turned a pale violet and became nearly invisible. He had grown accustomed to them. Their voices were low, monotonous to his ear, never rising or speeding up or sounding indecisive, completely expressionless. Their words defied any attempt to interpret them. He's back, the telepath announced. Good, I was afraid he might die, the navigator in charge went calmly about his duties of sighting and marking in a complex three-dimensional chart the course of the mighty ship as it ranged among the stars. He's recovering from his injury. He still can't receive any impulses from me. The telepath tried again and again to create a picture in the alien mind in their midst. Futile, he said. The differences are too great. Undisciplined, said the psychologist who had been waiting ever since their first visit by the alien. A disciplined mind can be reached by telepathy. Can you see his world? This faster navigator. Only the same intimate scenes of home life, his work, and his immediate surroundings. He's very primitive, or perhaps merely uneducated. If only he knew something about astronomy, the navigator shrugged and made a notation on his chart as two more distant planets registered violet. The names he associates with stars are these, the telepath probed deeper. The Dipper, North Star, Mars, no, that's one of the planets they've colonized. A wave of incredulity emanated from him, felt by the others of the crew, but not expressed in his voice. He doesn't know the difference between single stars, clusters, constellations, only that they appear as individual stars to him and he thinks of them as such. The navigator's calm voice belied the fury the others felt well out from him. Look at his son. Perhaps that will give us a hint. They all knew the improbability of this. The telepath began droning what little Alan knew about the sun when the captain appeared through another wall screen. He was accompanied by the ship's ethnologist, the expert who could reconstruct entire civilizations from the broken remains of a tool or an object of art, or less if necessary. The captain and his companions made themselves comfortable near the star screen and seemed immediately engrossed in the broken lines indicating the ship's flight in the three-dimensional reproduced outer spaces. Is he still here? Yes, sir. Is he aware yet that we discovered his presence among us? No, sir. We have made no effort to indicate our awareness of him. Very good. The captain then fell silent, pondering his particular problem as the ethnologist began adding to the growing list of facts that were known to Alan about Earth. They would have a complete picture of the present and the past, 
as complete as the alien's mind and memory could make it. But unless they could locate his planet, they might as well just go home and view space fiction films. This exploration trip had achieved very little real success. Only 14 planets that could be rated good with some sub-intelligent life. Several hundred fair with no intelligence, and only one he could conscientiously rate excellent. This mind was of an intelligent, though as yet unadvanced humanoid race. The planet it inhabited met every requirement to be rated excellent. Of this, the captain was certain. Suddenly, the telepath announced, He's gone. He became bored watching the screen. He knows nothing about astronomy, therefore the course loses its significance to him. He has the vague idea that we're going to a predetermined destination. The idea of an exploration charting cruise hasn't occurred to him yet. I wonder, mused the captain, how he reconciles his conscious mind to his subconscious wandering. The psychologist answered, as he begins to awaken, other dreams probably mingle with these memories, causing them to dim at the edges, thus becoming, to his mind, at any rate, merely another series of especially vivid, well-remembered dreams. I believe much of what lies in his subconscious is dream memory rather than fact memory. The psychologist didn't smile or indicate in any fashion the ridicule and sarcasm the others felt as he continued. He has the memory of being always well-fed. He has buried the memory of hunger so far down in his subconscious that it would take a skilled psychologist a long time to call it forth. The telepath stirred and started to reply, then didn't. The alien's mind had been like a film, clear and easy to read. Some of the pictures had been disturbing and incomprehensible, but only through their strangeness, not because they were distorted by dream images. The psychologist never could accept anything at face value, always probing and looking for hidden places and meanings, just as he did when told of the world democracy existing on Earth. Most likely a benign dictatorship, a world couldn't be governed by a democratic government, a small area perhaps, but not a world, thus spoke the psychologist, but the telepath had been inside Alan's mind and he knew it could and did work, not only the planet Earth, but also the colonies on Mars and Venus. The captain was still pursuing his own line of questioning. Has he ever shown any feeling of fear or repulsion towards us? No, he accepts us as different, but not to be feared because of it. That's because he believes we are figments of his imagination, that he can control us by awakening. The captain ignored this explanation advanced by the psychologist. A mind intelligent enough for dreams could feel fear in the dreams. Even the captain knew that. He was beginning to get the feeling that this earth race might prove a formidable foe 
when and if found. Has he shown any interest in the drive? He assumes we use an atomic drive. He has only the scantest knowledge of atomics, however. His people use such a drive. The fact that this race has atomics is another reason we should find them. This would be the third planet using atomic energy. A young race, an unknown potential. They did not have interstellar travel now, but 150 years ago, they didn't have atomic energy, and already they had reached their neighbor planets. It had taken three times as long for the captain's people to achieve the same success. The captain remembered the one other race located in his time that had atomics. They were exploring space in ever-widening circles. True, they hadn't made any startling advances yet in weapons. They had found decisive bombs and lethal rays and gases unnecessary. But they had learned fast. They had resisted the invaders with cunning and skill. Their bravery had never been questioned. But in the end, the aggressors had won. The captain felt no thrill of satisfaction in the thought. It was a fact accomplished long ago. The conclusion had been delayed, certainly, but it had also been inevitable. Only one race, one planet, one government could have the energy and the right to the raw materials that made the space lanes thoroughfares. The slaves might ride on the master's crafts, but might not own or operate their own. That was the law, and the captain was determined to uphold to the end of that law. And now this, one mind freed from its body and its earth, roaming the universe, divulging its secrets, all but only the one that mattered. How many millions of stars lit the way through space, and how many of them had their families of planets supporting life. The captain knew there was no answer, but still he sought ways of following the alien mind back to his body. Alan stirred his coffee slowly, not moving his head. This was his first meal sitting up. Now, at its conclusion, he felt too exhausted to lift his spoon from his cup. Claire gently did it for him and held the cup to his lips. Tired, darling? Her voice was a caress. A little. A little. All he wanted was his bed under him and Claire's voice whispering to sleep. I don't believe I'd even need a hypo. He was startled that he had spoken the thought, but Claire nodded, understanding. The doctor thinks it's best to put off having anything if you can. I'll read to you and see if you can sleep. They had rediscovered the joy of reading books, real, weather-bound books, instead of watching the 3D set or using the story films. Alan loved to lie quiescent, listening to the quiet voice 
of his wife rise and fall with the words. Often the words themselves were unimportant, but there was a music in listening to Claire read them. They were beautifully articulated, falling into a pattern as rhythmic as there were unheard drums beating the time. He tried to remember what the sound of her voice reminded him of, and then he knew. By the very difference in tone and expression, he was reminded of the crew of the mile-long spaceship in his dream. He grinned to himself at the improbability of the dream. Everyone speaking in the same metallic tone, the monotonous flight, never varying, never having any emergency to cope with. The noises of the hospital dimmed and became obscure and then lost entirely. All was silent again as he sped toward the quiet, lonesome planet he had last visited. There he had rested gazing at the stars hanging in expanding circles over him. He had first viewed the galaxy from aboard the spaceship, interested in the spiral shape of it he had left the ship to seek it out at closer range. Here, on this tiny planet, the effect was startling. If he closed out all but the brightest and largest of stars, there was a ring after ring of tiny glowing diamonds hanging directly above him. How many times had he come back? He couldn't remember but suddenly he thought about the mile-long spaceship again. He's back! The telepath never moved from his position before the sky screen, nor did the astro-navigator. Abruptly, however, the panorama went blank, and the two moved towards the screen on the opposite wall. Is he coming? Yeah, he's curious. He thinks something is wrong good. The two stepped from the screen into the large room where a group watched a film. The navigator and the telepath seated themselves slightly behind the rest of the assemblage. The captain had been talking. He continued as before. Let me know what his reactions are. The film interests him. The dimensional effect doesn't bother him. He appears accustomed to the form of three-dimensional films. Very good. Tell me the instant something strikes a responsive chord. The film was one of the educational astronomy courses for beginners. Various stars were shown singly and in their constellations and finally in their own galaxies. Nova and supernova planets and satellites appeared. The telepath dug deeply into the alien's memory, but found only an increasing interest, no memories of anyone seen. Suddenly, the telepath said, This one he thinks he has seen before. He has seen a similar galaxy from another position, one that shows the spiral directly overhead. The captain asked, Has this one been visible on the screen from such a position? Not in detail, only as part of the charted course, the navigator was making notes as he answered. There are only three fixes for this particular effect. 
a minor white dwarf with six satellites and two main sequence stars, satellites unknown, the captain thought deeply. Maybe only a similar galaxy, but again, maybe he was familiar with this one. The orders were given in the same tone he had used in carrying on the conversation. The alien had no way of knowing he was the helmsman guiding the huge ship through space. The telepath followed the alien's mind as he gazed raptly at the ever-changing film. Occasionally, he reported the alien's thoughts, but nothing of importance was learned. As before, the departure of the alien was abrupt. With the telepath's announcement, He's gone! The film flicked off, and normal activity was resumed. Later, the captain called a meeting of the psychologist, the telepath, the chief, navigator, and the ethnologist. We represent the finest minds in the universe, yet when it comes to coping one inferior intellect, we stand helpless. He flits in and out at will, telling us nothing. We are now heading light years out of our way on what might easily prove to be a fruitless venture, merely because of you. He held the telepath in his merciless gaze. Think he recognized one of the formations. The captain's anger was a formidable thing to feel, and the rest stirred uneasily. His voice, however, was the same monotone as it always was as he asked, And did you manage to plant the seeds in his mind as suggested at our last meeting? That's hard to say. I couldn't tell. The telepath turned to the psychologist for confirmation. He wouldn't know himself until he began feeling the desire for more education. Even then, it might be the, in the wrong direction. We can only wait and hope... We have hit on the way to find his home planet through making him want to learn astronavigation and astronomy. Soon afterward, the meeting was adjourned. Alan was back at work again, with all traces of his accident relegated to the past. His life was well-ordered and full, with no time for schooling. He told himself this over and over to no avail for he was still telling himself this when he filled out the registration blank at the university. He's here again! The telepath had almost given up expecting the alien ever again. He kept his mind locked in the others as he recited as though from a book. He's completely over his injury, working again, enrolled in night classes at the school in his town. He's studying atomic engineering. He's in the engine room now, getting data for something they call a thesis. Quietly, the captain rolled off a list of expletives that would have done justice to one of the raw space hands. And just as quietly, calmly, and perhaps stoically, he pushed the red button that began the chain reaction that would completely vaporize the mile-long ship. His last breath was spent in hoping the alien would awaken with a violent headache, which he did.
That was The Mile Long Spaceship by Kate Wilhelm, which was first published in astounding science fiction in April of 1957. This is Books and Bonds with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Underneath the story we just heard, there was George Crumb's Variation for Large Orchestra, performed by the Louisville Orchestra, and Hank Batting's Capriccio for Violin and Two Tracks with Joke Vermoulin on the violin. Now we are listening to Henrik Gorick's Symphony Number no. 1. It's an introduction performed by the Staatsphilharmonie Krakow. So, uh, announcement, a fire burning in Buellton Friday afternoon has caused officials to issue an evacuation warning for the Bobcat Springs area. Officials are calling this the windmill fire and was first reported at 2.15 p.m. on July 20th. According to the Santa Barbara County Fire Department, the fire is heading northeast towards Bobcat Spring Road, which is now under an evacuation warning advisory. Crews are fighting the flames from the air and on the ground. Two helicopters, two air tankers have been dropping retardant. According to KCSB, KSBY and KEYT News, the windmill fire is now 50 acres as of 3.30 p.m. So that was couple hours ago and officials say the fire is burning in mostly grass and light oak it is currently listed as being uh, 80% contained Santa Barbara County Fire Safety Officer Mike Ellison has reported that the fire is rapidly is um, spreading but it's currently 80% contained so you can see updates from the Santa Barbara Fire Department at Ellison Mike and stay tuned for KCSB for more updates. Uh, this has been Books and Bonds with Ray Guns on 91.9 KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. That's me for the evening. Next up, we have music to play in the dark with the Crypt Keeper.